From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month is observed each September in an effort to inform women about this potentially deadly form of reproductive organ cancer. On today's Mayo Clinic Radio program, we'll learn about the disease from a Mayo Clinic expert and hear from one woman whose life has been affected by ovarian cancer in more ways than one. I got tested and I was prepared either way of what to do. We discussed if it came back positive that my steps were to remove everything and lower my risk as much as possible. Also on the program, what do your genes have to do with your ability to lose weight? We'll learn about an individualized approach to obesity treatment. And the latest guidelines for blood donors. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the American Cancer Society, more than 14,000 women die every year from cancer of the ovary. Ovarian cancer often goes undetected until it is spread somewhere else, usually within the pelvis and the abdomen. And once it's spread, it's more difficult to treat and is unfortunately frequently fatal. One of those who lost her life to ovarian cancer was Christy Pitts, a physical therapy technician in sports medicine at Mayo Clinic. Christy passed away in February of 2014 at the age of 47 after a nine-year battle. Christy, while still alive, shared her journey with others in an effort to help shed light on the disease. September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and here to discuss is Mayo Clinic Gynecologic Oncologist, Dr. Carrie Langstrat, and we're also joined by Christy Pitt's sister, Ms. Jamie Grobner. Welcome to the program, both of you, Jamie and Dr. Langstrat. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Langstrat and, and Jamie, uh, so, thanks so much for being with us. Jamie, first of all, our condolences. I'm sure this was a difficult thing for both you and your family, your entire family. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. And Dr. Langstrat, so you see patients with ovarian cancer day in and day out. Why is it that this cancer is often so deadly? I think it is primarily so deadly because of the delay in diagnosis. There's no good screening test for ovarian cancer, and in addition, most of the symptoms of ovarian cancer are quite vague. So often it's abdominal bloating, uh, changes in bowel or bladder function, and often those are sort of treated as though you would treat constipation or um, you know other less serious illnesses. So patients will often go months without having a CT scan or other imaging studies um, which are needed to diagnose the ovarian cancer. In past years, though, have women started to not be so afraid or have been paying attention more to what's going on with their body? Is it getting any better? I don't think it's getting any better. I do think people are more aware of ovarian cancer and understand that that is a disease that can cause those symptoms. But yet they're so bad, and so many people have constipation or changes in bowel function or bloating that are not related to ovarian cancer. It's hard to screen or do a scan on everybody with those vague complaints. Jamie Grobner, I suspect that this might be reminiscent of your sister's story. Uh, yeah, I would say she always had constipation throughout her entire life um, and a little bit of back pain, but it was always mimicked because she thought that it was part of her PMS that was going on. Um, and so that also is a shadow in the background. There's so many women who go through that monthly cycle and the same type of symptoms mimic. 
How did she first find out that she had ovarian cancer? She had a lump in her clavicle, mm. um, which was suspicious. Really? Uh, mm-hmm. So that was a metastasis, Dr. Langstrand. It had already spread there? Correct. It had already left the abdomen, um, which is not atypical. The clavicle is a little unusual for them to have clavicular lymph nodes that are involved. Um, But it's not unusual for patients to present with stage 3 or stage 4 disease before it is detected. By the way, the clavicle for some of our listeners, that's the collarbone. (laughs) And there are some lymph nodes in the area. So Mm -hmm. her cancer had already left her abdomen, left her ovary, gotten into the bloodstream or the lymph system, and ended up in a lymph node up by her collarbone. Correct. And how long did it take as soon as that lymph node was felt that she was diagnosed? It must have gone pretty fast. Um, Actually, it was very ironic. At first, they assumed that she had a breast cancer. Hmm. Um, And so it took a good two weeks to actually find the primary because ovarian wasn't something they were considering at that time. Um, All the other tests, um, her other organs showed clear. So they ultimately biopsied that lymph node? Correct. Yep. And then they said, my gosh, this is coming from your ovary. Right. And then uh, I assume she was referred to a, a medical oncologist, someone Correct. like Dr. Longstride. And oh. then what happened? They anticipated her to be in a wheelchair, uh, expecting her to be very, very sick because she was already diagnosed at grade 3, stage 4. And um, when the oncologist walked in, he walked back out. Mm. He was very you know, caught off at her health and the way she carried herself and that he expected her to be very, very ill when she wasn't. Now, Dr. Longstrat, uh, for our, our, our listeners, explain that. Grade 3, stage 4. Sure. So um, grade is what tumors look like under the microscope. So grade 3 being very angry and abnormal appearing uh, cells compared to normal tissue. Um, and it's a progression in some ways, so normal to grade one to grade two to grade three. So grade three, bizarre, angry-looking cells under the microscope. Stage has to do with how far the cancer has spread. So stage one uh, is confined to the ovaries. Stage two involves the pelvic structures but has not left sort of where your pelvic bones end. Um, Stage three is in the abdomen, so up to your diaphragm, and stage four is either the liver or outside of the abdomen. What first got her into the doctor was that she had this lump up in the lymph by her clavicle. And you said that's not typical. What is typical? Typical is to see stage three. So we see disease involving the ovaries, the pelvic organs, uh, the omentum, which is a fatty pad that hangs from the stomach. And then often we will also see diaphragm involvement. So diaphragm is the muscle that helps us breathe. Just on that surface, there's sort of a skin that overlies the diaphragm, and that is often involved uh, at the presentation of ovarian cancer. Hmm. Is it... uh there are a lack of symptoms with regard to ovarian cancer because the ovaries are relatively small and so deep in your pelvis that the tumor has to get pretty big before you really have a symptom that will take you to the doctor, and by that time it's already spread elsewhere? Correct. You know, I often have women think about pregnancy, which is a little odd, but if you think about how far along you are in a pregnancy before you notice the belly getting a little bigger or you can see on somebody else that their belly is bigger, the uterus is already to the belly button. So your pelvis really hides, can hide a very large mass before it becomes noticeable or even symptomatic. And if you saw, if every woman went to the doctor when she felt bloated, 
You would you would mm. see. I mean, you know, that's yeah. a common <laughs> female complaint, isn't it? Once a month, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. even more than that, yeah. <laughs> but that is one of the symptoms, right? Correct. Uh, constipation. That's the only symptom your sister had. Constipation, correct? correct? correct. Before she felt uh, saw this lymph node, correct. felt this lymph node. Uh, anything else? Constipation, bloating, um, diarrhea, plus minus, um, feeling full earlier, so not able to eat as much. Uh, feeling like their belly is expanding, so maybe their pants get a little tighter or they're loosening their belt a little bit more. Um, sometimes back pain, sometimes shortness of breath or chest pain, which may indicate fluid around the lung related to ovarian cancer. Um, those are the main symptoms. All right, well, we know the symptoms. We just wish, wish we could catch it earlier in a lot of women. We're talking with Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Carrie Langstrat and Ms. Jamie Grobner, whose sister died of ovarian cancer about three years ago. Time for a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk in depth with Jamie about some of the choices that she has made, what she has done to try to prevent ovarian cancer, the disease that took her sister's life. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, a small percentage of ovarian cancers are caused by an inherited gene mutation. The genes known to increase the risk of ovarian cancer are called breast cancer gene 1, BRCA1, and breast cancer gene 2, BRCA2. These genes were originally identified in families with multiple cases of breast cancer, which is how they got their names, BRCA1, BRCA2. But women with these mutations are also 30 times more likely to get ovarian cancer than other women. We're back talking with oncologist Dr. Carrie Langstrat and with Jamie Grobner, who lost her sister to ovarian cancer in 2014. So, Jamie, tell us about the process. Your sister was then tested, and she is a carrier of one of those genes, and, and you were too. Mm-hmm. So her tissue samples were sent away after her first initial surgery to test for any type of genetic mutations, and they came back negative, and we were told that her cancer could have been environmental and if there was any other you know, tissue samples that they could give later on to send again and look for that. Um, Later on, she was tested, and during other tests, colonoscopy it was, they sent some of her tissue, which also came back negative. Mm. And prior to her passing away, there was another option where her tissue was sent again to a third facility, actually. And that's when it was diagnosed that she was a BRCA carrier. So uh, you're saying that when she had the first two biopsies, including the surgery to remove her her Mm -hmm. ovaries and uterus, that they didn't detect the BRCA gene? None was detected at that time. How can that show up up later on, Dr. Linkstrat? As technology changes, they spin the tissue down different, and certain Ah. cells are looked at differently. Um, And each genetic institute that you send things to may not have the most up-to-date. So the testing got better. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what do you remember about it? Were you pretty close to your sister? Very close. And what do you remember about her treatment? Um, I remember being upset because we couldn't figure out why she got cancer. Um, It took us years before we were able to to get a family history down pat. All of my grandparents had passed away. Um, My family didn't, you know, you didn't look at that stuff back in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't important. And so it took a long time before we could identify where things were coming from and who was ill. And, you know, it ended up being from my mom's side. And and once we knew that she had a BRCA1, it changed the entire cocktail treatment that she was having for chemotherapy. 
And once you knew that she was a BRCA carrier, how long did it take you? How long did you wrestle with that decision to find I, out for yourself? I, I didn't wrestle with it. We found out two weeks before she passed away, um, and she asked me to promise to get tested for my kids. Um, so I didn't have the same story, and that was a no-brainer. I, I watched her um, get defeated by mm. a horrible disease, and that was not the way that I wanted my life or my kid's life. How long How long did it, was it from the time she was diagnosed until her, her death? Um, she was diagnosed um, March of 2005. She passed away February 21st of 2014. Oh, that's oh, a, that's so a battle. Took, yeah, a real fight. And mm-hmm. she had surgery, chemo, radiation, yeah. she everything? Had, she did. She had... Um, Surgery was March 10th of 2005. She had six cycles of chemotherapy, and after that, she ended up doing an 18-month maintenance chemotherapy, um, which probably really set her up for success. Um, That was something that she did once a week for 18 months. Mm. So what did you do with the information that you were also a BRCA carrier? So I did not get tested until September. Um, September of the year she of died. Of 2014. Um, just kind of, you know, needed to get everything under control with family and settle sure. down before there was more bad news or good news, whichever mm-hmm. it was going to be. Um, in September, I got tested, and the call came in, and I was prepared either way of what to do. I knew exactly. I had already talked with um, Dr. Jamie Bacham, and we discussed if it came back positive that my steps were to remove everything and lower my risk as po- much as possible. Uh, do you have children? Have you had I do children? Have two. Okay, mm-hmm. so th- that made it a little bit easier. Yep, it did. Yeah. Okay, so you then went ahead and had a, what it's called a total hysterectomy, mm-hmm. removing did. your ovaries and your uterus. Correct, I did. And that presumably, obviously, will prevent you from getting ovarian cancer. Are there other cancers that you're still at risk for? There are a handful of mutations that don't have enough information to back which types I could be at risk for. Um, it doesn't secure that I'm not ever going to get mm-hmm. it. It just lowers my risk in 2-3% or less. And it puts you into a category now called pre-vivorship. Yay. Never had heard that word before. Mm-hmm. Dr. Langstrack, could you explain that a little bit? I think I can kind of understand the gist mm-hmm. of it, but uh, what does that mean? So pre-vivor actually was coined by um, the FORCE group, which is um, it's a group of women that have BRCA mutations that are at risk of ovarian and breast cancer. And they coined the term pre-vivor to explain the group of patients that had the opportunity to do risk reduction strategies or approach um, their risk of cancer with taking out their ovaries and sometimes in some cases mastectomy, but they are facing their risk, knowing what could come and doing whatever they can to reduce the risk of cancer. Because we're at a point in medical history now where you can actually know what your genetics are, whereas a generation ago that was not, you had the family history, right. but that was it. That was it. Right. Well, I had never heard the word either, pre-vivor. Yeah. So See, you learned something new, Dr. Yeah, Shai. No kidding. I'm so glad I showed up today. So I, I have another question, and that, uh, what about the other family members? Do you have sisters, and uh, is your mother living, and did all of those so, them get tested, and daughters? So my father um, refused to get tested. Well, what does BRCA gene mean for a male, Dr. Langstrack? Um, it actually means risk of breast cancer in mm-hmm. the male, sometimes pancreatic cancer, and sometimes prostate cancer as well can be associated with BRCA mutations. Okay, he's a farmer, said don't eat it. Okay, (laughs) who else? Sounds like a farmer. (laughs) My my mother, um, she ended up getting diagnosed with a lung cancer um, in uh, March of 2000 and 
13 and passed That's away. while your sister was still alive. Yep. She mm-hmm. died before your sister. She did. She oh. and she got diagnosed in March. She passed away in August. Um, and so, yes, they passed away about 184 days apart from each hmm. other. Uh, she refused to get tested because she didn't want to die knowing that it could have been her or her oh. family members that may kill her daughter. So mm-hmm. she was really, really mm-hmm. upset with that fact and wouldn't do it. Eventually, we found out through her other family members who have a long line of cancers that populated into our into our family history. Uh, and my two brothers, um, they don't want to know. Mm-hmm. They se- seen enough with my mom and right. my sister that they um, they don't want to get testing. They have they have children and their children are okay to get testing, but um, they just they don't want to know. It's under it is definitely understandable. It's frustrating. Yeah. So I missed part of that. Do you have daughters? I have that? one daughter and it, one son. Okay. And did your daughter get tested or not yet? There's some issues there that I'm kind of fighting with. They don't want me to force my children to be tested sure. at this point because no. they're not of age to make their own decision. Um, and so I'm, I'm wrestling with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're at that time in the history of medicine for these questions and these conversations mm-hmm. to be happening. What else is happening at this time uh, when it comes to ovarian cancer and uh, awareness, Dr. Langstrat? Yeah, what's new? What have you got that's going to be better? <laughs> Um, so we do have some new therapies available, uh, in particular new therapies for BRCA mutation carriers. Um, there's a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors that have shown to be very effective in patients that have BRCA mutations or whose tumors have BRCA mutations. And actually, although the most evidence or the most benefit seems to be in these patients with the BRCA mutations, uh, there are there is evidence that they work well even in patients that have no mutation. So um, that's probably the most exciting thing is that we have new approval for new therapies from the FDA. By the way, we, we've said that this is a bad cancer, and, and everyone knows that, but what actually is the five-year survival rate? How many women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer are actually alive five years later? So there's uh, quite a few factors that go into overall survival. If we look at all comers, uh, stage three to four, it's about... 30% uh, five-year survival. Uh, the things that make patients or patients seem to do better are the patients that have complete resection of their disease up front, and those patients can have a median survival of around five years. So um, overall five-year... Average survival five years. Five years if they've had a complete cytoreductive surgery, so complete debulking of their tumor, and then they have adjuvant chemotherapy. All right. We've been talking with gynecologic cancer specialist Dr. Carrie Langstrat and Ms. Jamie Grobner, whose sister unfortunately died of ovarian and cancer three years ago. Thanks so much to both of you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about Mayo Clinic Obesity Clinic's individualized approach to weight loss. And later on in the show, an update on the guidelines for blood donation. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Now, you might not think about heart disease as being a childhood issue. Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, says a child's eating and exercise habit can influence heart health in the future. He offers tips on how families can develop a lifetime of better heart health by integrating fun choices into their daily routines. He says a lifetime of heart health starts in childhood. We know that kids do what they learn. If they learn to eat healthy, they continue to do it. 
If they learn to be active physically, they continue to do it. Dr. Kopetsky says a child's eating habits form between ages 10 and 12, and exercise habits develop between ages 6 and 8. If those habits are not heart healthy... We can predict they're more likely to have heart disease later in life. Dr. Kopetsky suggests families get heart healthy together, and the key is to make it fun. What we've done uh, in this country is sometimes make it punitive. Oh, I've got to eat that? Ugh. You know, that, who wants to do that? Or remember PE classes in, uh, in school. Do activities that get you and the family moving and smiling. Let your kids help plan and cook family meals. Dr. Kopetsky says the family that moves, eats, and smiles together gets healthy together. And now let's talk about eyesight. So many people need corrective lenses. But are you tired of your glasses? Contact lenses might be the answer. The best type for you will depend on your vision problem, lifestyle, and budget. Contacts come in two types, soft and hard. Soft contacts are the most popular in the U.S. and worldwide. Soft lenses can be used to correct various vision problems, including nearsightedness, the technical term for which is myopia, blurred vision, age-related loss of close-up vision, and corneal irregularities. Soft contact lenses are comfortable and easier to adapt to than the hard, rigid lenses. Hard lenses do provide clear, crisp vision for most vision problems. Hard contact lenses might be especially appealing if you've tried soft lenses and have been unsatisfied with the results, or if you have dry eyes. No matter what type you wear, it's very important to use them correctly to keep your eyes healthy. Practice good hygiene. Use clean hands when handling your contacts. Remove your lenses before you go to sleep. Minimize contact with water and saliva. Remove your contact lenses before you swim or use a hot tub and don't put those lenses in your mouth to wet them. Take care with contact lens solutions, use only as directed, and replace contact lenses and cases as recommended. If your vision becomes blurry or you have eye pain, sensitivity to light, discharge, swelling, or other problems, remove your lenses and consult your eye care specialist promptly. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, two-thirds of Americans are overweight and one-third are obese. Mm. Now, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because obesity is associated with all kinds of health problems, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, just to name a few. Now, the CDC also estimates that the annual medical cost of obesity is in the neighborhood of $150 billion a year. Billion dollars. Billion with a B. Goodness. While sticking to a diet and exercise plan helps some people lose weight, unfortunately, others are not so successful. Why do some people have trouble losing weight no matter what they try? Well, the answer may just lie in their genes. And here to discuss obesity treatment from the Center for Individualized Medicine is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Andres Acosta. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Acosta. It's nice to see you again. Tracy, uh, Tom, thank you so much for having me back, and I'll be delighted to be talking about our new uh, findings from our research. So, Dr. Acosta, when I read that, I think maybe uh, all of the problems begin with my parents and grandparents. Is that what we're saying? Well, not exactly. Um, 
It is an important factor, and our genetics have a strong contribution or predetermination to what our weight and what we're going to do when we're trying to lose weight. At the end of the day, through evolution, we've been trying to create this, or we have developed into humans that we're trying to save energy, to survive, and that's our instinct as any species. So for every 100 genes that we have that we try to burn, that we try to save calories, we only have one that we are ready to burn calories. So hmm. 100 to 1, and the odds are against us. But our environment plays a major role into this. So the decisions that we make with our genetic predisposition are contributing to this obesity epidemic. What I think is important is we need to try to understand those genes and how our genetic contribution predisposed to this and our environment in only to predict who is going to respond to what and move into the treatment of obesity. Because at this point, as you well said, our new statistics on the obesity epidemic are alarming. Two-thirds of us are suffering from obesity, and we need to find a better way, an individualized way, to treat this problem instead of treating like everyone has the same problem. So, you know, this is uh, the genetic part of this is something that we've known forever. I mean, if, you're, if your parents were uh, obese, you were more likely to be obese than if your parents weren't. So what's, what's different now? We've known that there's a genetic component, but what can you do with that information? How can you help people? Yeah, we need to look at obesity like we look at any other disease. Let's use an example, for example, breast cancer. We know that Someone might have breast cancer, but some of the people might have a genetic contribution or some not, like the BRCA test. We need to look at obesity exactly the same way. Some people might have obesity. They might have a genetic contribution with a specific gene that is contributing to something specifically. So in things like the, how you feel full, your appetite levels, how you burn calories or you're burning energy. And once we identify those specific pathways or what we call those phenotypes within each member with obesity or each patient with obesity, then we can identify what genetic contribution they have. And more importantly, we can try to subgroup them into an individualized approach in order to manage them accordingly to their phenotype. So if I come to the Individualized Medicine Obesity Center, what's going to happen? So we're moving obesity beyond just saying, hey, you have a few extra pounds, you should lose weight. We're saying, you have obesity, let me find out what is your obesity, why you have become at this weight, even though you've been trying to diet and exercise now for years, why do you have not been successful? And in order to do that, we do certain testings. We test your energy expenditure. You test, we test your level of fullness, your appetite, your gastric emptying. We test your genes, how you're going to respond to medications using a pharmacogenomics approach. And we measure your body composition. So once we have all that information, we try to identify into which group the individual will lay, and then based on that, we will try to give a more specific intervention. So in summary, a few appointments, a few testing, and then we can find out who is going to respond to what and being very successful. As uh, we have been saying in our recent blogs, we're doubling the weight world loss response compared to conventional treatment. Oh, that's impressive. So pharmacogenomics, uh, we've learned about that from, from previous guests. But uh, in, in the field of obesity, that suggests that you have some medications that actually work, and pharmacogenomics are going to help you decide which medication for which patient. But I didn't realize there were any medications for weight loss that actually did work. Correct. So we have five medications approved for uh, weight loss, approved by the FDA, that are used uh, for in a chronic manner, so for years uh, have been approved. And what we're trying to move now is into a more specific use of those medications. The reason why we're moving to those lines is because one of these medications, there will be about 30% of patients who do not respond. 30% of patients will be 
okay responders, but 30% of patients will be great responders. And what I mean by great responders is they will lose more than 10% of their total body weight in a year and sustain that weight loss. So what that means when you lose more than 10% of your body weight and uh, you sustain that weight loss, there's an improvement on your diabetes or prevention of your diabetes or your pre-diabetes, sure. improvement on your hypertension, improvement on your cholesterol and lipid panels, improvement on your sleep apnea, and many other comorbidities that are associated with obesity. So for that reason, we really push to try to hit that 10% of more of total body weight loss and sustain. And you said that your program is twice as successful as most programs. And most programs, the success rate is what, 15, 20, at most 30%? No, unfortunately, we wish we would be so successful. Uh, most of our programs uh, contribute somewhere around 8 to 10% of the total body weight loss. And right now, with our approach, we're getting closer to 15% of total body weight loss. But the most important thing is we need to talk about the individual. So in the conventional programs or standard of care, only about 30% of patients reach that 10%. With our approach, we're getting close to 74%. Really? So um, it's something that is um, quite innovative, and we're still doing a lot of research behind this. But I think that we don't need to wait for the research to be completed. I think we need to start offering this to our patients so we can help them and they can benefit from this new way of seeing obesity and treating it. I'm concerned that someone might hear this and think, well, my parents were heavy, my grandparents were heavy, I'm heavy, and now this explains it. It's genetics. Yep. So I'm There's off the hook. There's nothing I can do about I'm it. I'm off right. the hook. I think we have an explanation, but the treatment will still come with uh, severe lifestyle changes, a diet, and an exercise program. So, yes, we might blame a little bit of grandparents, but we also need to blame our decisions of staying in the couch and overeating as the major contributions for obesity. So let me see if I can summarize it. And, and so 70% of your patients are able to uh, reduce their total body fat by 15 to 20%. Is that about right? By 15%. 15%. Yeah. And that's twice as good as anything heretofore. Correct. And that is not, but that is only with pharmacotherapy. If we talk about endoscopic devices, such as the intragastric balloon or the endoscopic sleeve, it's higher, as well as with surgery, it's higher. So, and each of them will have their own individualized approach. Dr. Acosta, thanks so much for being with us. Dr. Acosta is part of the Individualized Obesity Treatment at Mayo Clinic. He's a gastroenterologist. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Tom and Tracy, for having me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear about updated guidelines for blood donors. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic. News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Every six minutes, a patient at Mayo Clinic needs a transfusion of blood or blood products. And that's just the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Wow. Now, it might be a child with leukemia or maybe an accident victim who, lo- who has lost a lot of blood. And for a whole host of reasons, blood donations are a constant need around the country. In an effort to increase the pool of potential donors and to coincide with American Red Cross recommendations, the Mayo Clinic Clinic Blood Donor Program has updated eligibility guidelines for donors who have had some previous cancer diagnoses. Maybe you can donate now. Maybe. (laughs) Here to discuss guidelines for being a blood donor is Dr. Justin Kreuter. Dr. Kreuter is the medical director for the Blood Donor Program at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kreuter. Thanks for having me and highlighting this topic. Yeah, Dr. Kreuter, nice to see you. And there's several reasons that we've had you on the program previously, but now there's another reason, and it's good news for some people who want to be donors. Absolutely. We're excited. There's a whole host of donors that have been loyal uh, blood donors through the years, and then they 
they've come across a period of uh, bad luck and, and getting a cancer diagnosis. And, uh, and this is a way that we can bring them back into our community of active blood donors sooner. Because previously, if you were diagnosed with cancer, then you, going forward, you cannot be a blood donor. But no longer... No, well, it depends on the type of cancer, oh, okay. and this is also <laughs> going to depend on your local blood uh, collection center as well. And so what we've done here is homogenize ourselves with what the Red Cross is doing. So we looked at this issue of uh, what's the risk? When we're talking about blood donors, we're concerned, obviously, about the health of the donor. We're also very concerned about the health of the recipient. In this situation of a history of cancer diagnosis, uh, uh, non-blood uh, cancer, so not lymphomas or leukemias, uh, it, it really is, uh, there's no data to say that there's any risk to the recipient. So it's really based on the donor's health. We want to make sure that our blood donors have uh, an ample time to recover from their uh, cancer treatment. And so that's why we've switched from used to be a five-year uh, deferral before we'd let uh, folks come back in uh, to say, you know what, after one year, if somebody's completed treatment and they've been healing that whole time, it's probably fine to have them come back in and donate. So. You're saying that there is no evidence that a person who has had cancer previously could give someone else cancer through a blood transfusion. That's correct. There's no uh, no cases that have ever happened of that. And certainly, uh, you know, we have blood donors that have given that then, uh, you know, quite soon after actually sure. sometimes come down with a diagnosis. And uh, so there's been uh, plenty of situations where, unbeknownst to us, there was a recent cancer diagnosis in, in a unit that was transfused. And there's never been any uh, case reports of uh, some recipient of a blood transfusion uh getting cancer. Not yet for leukemia or lymphoma patients, though, for those survivors. That's the way we're moving. So that's that's what the uh, national practice uh, mm-hmm. is. And so we're moving towards a step. It holds true, what I say, for people of, who have uh, been diagnosed with uh, leukemia or lymphoma. There still has not been any cases of those being transmitted to a recipient. Uh, but we're uh, working uh, towards that direction. We want to make sure that we still give uh, uh, patients ample time to heal, we do know that there can certainly be uh, relapses, and we want to make sure that we're not drawing uh, blood from a patient that, or from a donor who then needs mm-hmm. it uh, two weeks later. Uh, so, Dr. Shives had said every six minutes uh, transfusion is is needed here at the Mayo Clinic campus in Rochester, Minnesota. That seems like that must mean a huge need that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the need across the country really is is constant, and that, that makes it a struggle. I mean, if you have a constant need, it sort of uh, fades in the background, which is why it's so wonderful when programs like yourself uh, highlight this, and this brings it back into the forefront of, of uh, folks' mind. And so uh, based on this new criteria that we here are doing at the Mayo Clinic Blood Donor Center, I guess I'd encourage listeners to uh, contact their local uh, blood collection center to see if they are eligible to donate. So review for us um, the criteria for being a blood donor. Well, it, it, uh, there are some things that are set by federal law. Uh, so, uh, you know, you have to be at least 110 pounds to donate. You have to be in, in good uh, general health and feel well and healthy on the day of donation. How old? Uh, so that's also going to depend uh, mm-hmm. on what state you're in. Uh, so everywhere across the U.S., once you're 17, uh, you're eligible to donate. And in some states, uh, you can donate at age 16 with parental permission. So that's going to be something also that varies uh, across the country. Do some blood banks pay 
for you to donate? No. Uh, really? And that, that separates us uh, from the plasma donation centers. Uh, if you're donating plasma at those centers, they do pay for donations, but never for anybody who's donating uh, whole blood, uh, packed red cells, platelets, uh, any of the other sort of donation process. People that are frequent plasma donors at plasma centers, it's actually a different industry. Tell our listeners what you mean by plasma. There's a separate industry. So plasma donors are donors that come in uh, frequently, and when they come in and donate, uh, they do uh, many of the same things that we are talking about when people donate blood. They're going to take off those infectious disease markers. We test all of our uh, blood donors for HIV, hepatitis, etc. In the plasma donation world, they take that donation and they freeze it and they kind of put it in this hold area. And when the donor comes back, then uh, they come back frequently. But when there's a six-month period and they've got two negative uh, infectious disease tests for six months, they will then take that plasma that's been on hold and use it to make factor concentrates. So, for example, drugs that treat patients that have hemophilia, that's how we get some of those factor concentrates if they're plasma-derived. Albumin, something else that we use uh, quite a bit in surgery as well. So plasma, you mean uh, everything but the blood cells. You don't take the blood cells. Exactly. In, in plasma donation, plasma is, is the usually straw-colored, watery fluid that really is what our cells are swimming in in our veins. Uh, Some of the uh, folks who donate blood on a very regular basis, are the records that have been set are going to be safe. <laughs> because what I've understood is over the last couple of years now, it's getting changed to uh, you have to go longer in between donations. Is that, is that right? So that's this is something also that uh, we're a little unique here at Mayo Clinic. So across the country, uh, for whole blood donors, which is the most common kind of uh, blood donation, you have to wait eight weeks, and that's man- mandated by federal law. Uh, here at Mayo Clinic, we've been, uh, for the time being, asking donors to wait uh, 12 weeks in between donation, and that's because there's a lot of focus on donor health. We certainly don't want to take uh, regular donors and make them uh, iron-deficient anemic and make our donors become patients uh, in the process of trying to help others. And that's why uh, we've really taken a conservative approach here of waiting 12 weeks in between. We're actually doing uh, studies uh, to see how effective this is and if this is the best way forward. This is actually a very uh, hot topic in my world of, of blood collection centers, and, um, and we're uh, really uh, looking forward to getting data to understand what's the best way going forward. How can listeners become donors? Listeners should definitely reach out and call their local blood collection center, uh, find out if they are eligible uh, to donate, or find out if they're not eligible to donate. Certainly another huge thing is looking to see how they can help promote blood donation in their community. All right, Dr. Justin Kreuter, Medical Director of the Blood Donor Program, Mayo Clinic Rochester, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for highlighting this, Tom. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.